Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for the word and the, the wonderful guidance and truth that it, uh, it gives to us, Lord. We thank you for the gospel once for all delivered to the saints, Lord. Uh, we ask that you would use this time today and the, the words that Tom will preach to us from your word, Lord, to increase the purity and simplicity of our devotion to you, Lord. And we ask that you would keep uh, CBC, Lord, as a church, and as we reach out to other people in that purity, Lord, that we would not be led astray, Lord, uh, that you would protect us from deceivers and false teachers, Lord, that we would be vigilant in these things, Lord, and that is because we have our eyes fixed on you, Lord, uh, whom to know is life eternal. In your name we pray these things, amen. Good morning. When you hear the word jealousy, uh, do you think of it as a virtue or as a vice? One of the many attributes that God repeatedly ascribes to himself in both testaments of the Bible is jealousy. Jealousy for his own holiness, for his own glory, and jealousy for his people, his redeemed. That fact has caused more than a few highly influential people in this generation to turn scornfully away from the God of the Bible. Names like Oprah Winfrey, Brad Pitt, uh, many theologians who uh, were raised by parents who professed faith in Jesus Christ have made it known publicly that 
one of the most determinative reasons that they walked away from the faith in which they were raised is because they could not abide a jealous God. They see the God represented in the Bible as egotistical, as self-seeking. And they cannot reconcile that with the claim that, that God is loving. But they err because they do not know the Word of God nor the God of the Word. When mortal men characterize the jealousy of God as a vice that could never be true of a being who is holy and righteous and loving, they are recreating God in the image of fallen men. They are assuming that God's jealousy is like the worst kind of jealousy that they see in themselves and in other human beings. So they conclude that, that the jealousy that the Bible attributes to God is at the expense of those who worship him. That his jealousy is at the expense of those who worship him. And that his jealousy for the devotion of his image bearers robs us of blessing and of well-being. But God's word everywhere declares exactly the opposite, right? God's revelation to mankind makes it abundantly clear that our well-being depends on and proceeds from our fidelity to God above all others, actually instead of all others. It would be unloving, not loving, for God not to demand that we honor and glorify Him above every created thing and every created being. Because not to do so <laughs> not only robs God of what is rightfully His, but it robs us of every blessing for which He created mankind. His greatest glory is our greatest good. That is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. His greatest glory is our greatest good. It's really foundational to what it means to be human. For human beings to paint the jealousy of God as something evil instead of praiseworthy even denies the legitimate jealousy that most unbelievers have toward, for those whom they dearly love, right? Even most unbelievers recognize that only a husband who is himself morally bankrupt would be okay with sharing his physical affections with his, his wife's physical affections with another man. And only a wife who is herself morally bankrupt would be okay with sharing her husband's physical affections with another woman. And how many parents, even unbelieving parents, place so little value on the purity of their child's marriage that they would be just fine watching, watching th their child be seduced by someone else into an adulterous relationship that, that made a wreckage of, of the marriage. Is jealousy for the purity of your own marriage or of your child's marriage good or is it evil? The Apostle Paul begins this chapter by declaring his godly jealousy for Christ's bride. He makes this appeal to the Corinthians in verses 1 and 2. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness 
but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The foolishness that Paul asked the Corinthians to, to bear with him in is the boasting that he's about to present in verses 5 and following. The boasting that, will, that is presented as a defense of his own ministry. Now there's a strong element of sarcasm in verse 1. <laughs> Paul uses sarcasm quite a lot, actually. He just talked about the foolishness of, the, uh, of those in Corinth who were, who were criticizing him uh, and his co-workers. In chapter 10, verse 12, he said, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. You know what that phrase, without understanding, means? It means they're fools. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus declared a condemning indictment against anyone who calls his brother a fool. He said, whoever harbors anger toward his brother or calls his brother good for nothing or calls his brother a fool is guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Those are very strong words, intentionally. So how can Paul say of his his harsh critics in Corinth that they are without understanding, that they are foolish. Well, I listened to a sermon on this passage by Sinclair Ferguson, and he, he drew this distinction. It's one that I, I, I've heard and said a number of times, but I thought this is a good spot to raise it. There is a very big difference between calling foolish what God has clearly called, called foolish and declaring someone to be a fool with ourselves as the standard of measure. In Psalm 14, verse 1, King David wrote on God's behalf, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So there's a pretty clear, clear uh, criterion for determining if someone's a fool. But denying the existence of God the God of the Bible is not the only thing that identifies someone as a fool. The word fool or foolish shows up 190 times in the Bible, always referring to human beings. Except perhaps in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. The book of Proverbs points out many, many behaviors that identify a person, not just a behavior, as either foolish or wise. What Jesus condemned in Matthew 5, 21 and 22 is one man arrogantly declaring another man to be a fool with himself as the standard of judgment. More to the point, without the clear authority of God's judgment, to back up that declaration. You and I never get to say that somebody's a fool because we think they are or because we say so. But there are times when we must say on God's behalf that God has declared them a fool on the basis of His own Word. In some cases, that may, may be the most important thing that a person has ever heard about himself or herself. 
Here in 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, in effect, oh, you guys are fine with letting foolish men come in among you with their groundless accusations against me and my faithful co-workers. So the least you can do is indulge me in a little foolishness. The foolishness he's referring to, again, is his defense of his own ministry. He's actually been talking about, he's been presenting that defense at many points throughout this letter, and he's going he's to really zero in on that defense a little later in this very chapter, chapter 11. Now, Paul knows very well that nothing he ever did or suffered for Christ's sake is worthy to be compared with that which Jesus did and suffered for our sakes. And that's why he calls his self-defense foolishness. But in the final analysis, Paul's defense of his own ministry is for the sake of building up the church and identifying the distinction between wisdom and foolishness. Um, it's actually his defense, his self-defense is actually wise, not foolish. Here in chapter 15, Paul presents himself as an excellent example of how godly love for Christ's bride plays out in the hearts and actions of believers, of each believer to whom God has given that controlling love, the love for God and love for God's people. Paul's jealousy is like the jealousy of a good father for the purity of the union between his beloved daughter and the husband to whom he has betrothed that, that daughter. Now, of course, this is in the context of arranged marriages. I don't know if you guys know this, but did you know that arranged marriages have a very much higher success rate in the long term than marriages that are by choice, that are without the involvement of the parents? That's, you, know, you know why? Parents actually know a lot. Paul was the spiritual father of the saints in Corinth. He was the faithful ambassador of Christ through whom God had brought these beloved saints into everlasting union with Jesus. And Paul is fiercely, fiercely protective of that sacred union. He says in verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. As I read Paul's words here, I can't help thinking of David's description to King Saul in 1 Samuel 17. When David asked Saul to let him go up against the giant Goliath, the Philistine warrior who was mocking God's covenant people and threatening their destruction, in making his case before King Saul, David, who was a teenage shepherd boy at the time, testified of his own fierce protectiveness toward the sheep that his own father had put under his protection and care. David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. 
That is a godly jealousy, a godly protectiveness. Paul's protection of Christ's beloved bride for the sake of Christ is every bit as fierce as David's protection of his father's beloved sheep. Paul presents his own fierce jealousy for the purity and the set-apartness of Christ's bride as an example for you and me and every other child of God. This should get our attention. Like Paul, every believer is called to be vigilant against every kind of assault of the adversary who relentlessly seeks to deceive the church just as he deceived Eve in the garden. Paul says, but I am afraid, verse 3, I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I love that my brother Nathan prayed for the protection of that simplicity and purity when he opened this just now. Some translations render the word simplicity in that verse as sincerity or even completeness. But the root meaning of the word is actually singleness. Singleness. And that helps us understand what what Paul's talking about. Our love for Jesus and our fidelity to Jesus is to be without any competitors. Without any competitors. What Paul is jealously striving to protect is the church's one and only legitimate obsession. We think of the word obsession as a, as a negative, as a vice, but there is one legitimate obsession for us as the children of God and corporately as the people of God, and that is our husband Christ, the husband of the church. What is the threat that Paul is confronting here? Well, he says that these phony apostles that have come in the midst of the Corinthians are selling a threefold replacement of the real with the fake. They're they're peddling another Jesus, whom Paul says we have not preached, a different spirit which you have not received, and a different gospel which you have not accepted. Now I'm going to come back to that threefold deception at the end of this message. At this point, what I want us to note is is Paul's grave disappointment that these saints would so readily allow such attacks to gain any kind of foothold in the church at Corinth. Again, he says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Now I need to point out again, Paul is not writing these words to to unbelievers. He's writing to Christians. And he makes that clear in the introduction to both of these letters. He's writing to the saints, to the holy ones. But there's a stern warning here. This is, it reminds me a lot of what he says to the Galatian saints in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-8, through 8, when he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. There isn't another gospel. 
Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul does not say that the Galatian believers have in fact deserted the one who called them by the grace of Christ. In other words, God the Father. He says you are deserting Him. Paul is stepping in to a process that has to be ended. It cannot stand. Like the Galatians, the the Corinthians have not decisively embraced another Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel, but their failure to decisively put away these false teachers is an absolutely intolerable state of affairs. And that too should get our attention. After shaming the Corinthians for being so willing to allow wolves in sheep's clothing into the midst of God's flock, Paul returns in verses 5-9 through to the defense of his own ministry to that flock. His contrast between the fake shepherds and himself is quite dramatic. He says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Now, there's been some confusion about the wording, the most eminent apostles. That particular translation of the words might make it sound as if Paul is referring to other genuine apostles of Christ. But all you have to do is read the rest of the chapter to understand that that these people Paul is talking about are fakes. They're fake apostles. And so I, I like the translation super apostles because it reflects the dripping sarcasm with which Paul is presenting this statement. Paul uses the same phrase a little later in chapter 12, verse 11, when he asserts a second time that he is in no way inferior, inferior to these super apostles. They're fakes, imposters. He says there in chapter 12 that he, Paul, has been proven to these saints as a true apostle. So there's the contrast. And he says there that 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 proof came in the form of the signs and wonders that God had already performed through Paul in the midst of these saints. Here in chapter 11, it is not signs and wonders that Paul puts out on the table to demonstrate that he's the real thing. What is it? First, it's knowledge. Knowledge. The knowledge that God has imparted to the Corinthians through him. The knowledge of God. He says in 11.6, even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. The criticism against Paul that he is un, unimpressive in his speech has come up over and over and over again in both in these two letters. In fact, he'd go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? Paul never attempts in any way to vindicate his oratorical skill. Never. For one simple reason. Such skill would have absolutely nothing to do with with his apostolic authority 
or with his usefulness as a preacher of the word of the cross. That should get our attention. What does vindicate him as an apostle and evangelist of Jesus Christ is the true knowledge of Christ that he has faithfully proclaimed and imparted to the people in every city in which God, to which God has sent him for Christ's sake. Paul raised the same compelling vindication way back in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is exactly what he says in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says we have this treasure, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from us. There's a reason that God did not choose to make Paul eloquent. And it was because eloquence has nothing to do with qualification to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should get our attention, beloved. That should get your attention. Do you know that the two greatest fears of men, males, in America, according to surveys, is are snakes and public speaking. But God intends for every child of His to be ready to give account for the hope that is in them. And even to look for opportunities to do so. The people around us are desperately in need of the Gospel. And God has left us here to tell them. We must not miss this, beloved. It is not excellent presentation. It is not powers of persuasion that make a man an effective ambassador of Jesus Christ. It is not personal charisma or flowery words. It is truth. The truth that God has revealed to all of mankind in His Word. Paul has no interest in asserting or vindicating his own speaking skills. In fact, the very, the very fact that his detractors would focus on that particular weakness as evidence of his lack of credentials to claim apostolic authority actually serves only to highlight their godless priorities. Their priorities are worldly, not godly. Paul's priorities are God's priorities. And at the very heart, at the very heart of what God calls every under-shepherd of his flock to do is to rightly handle and rightly teach the Word of God. The God-revealed message that is the wisdom of God and the power of God. The power of salvation to all who believe. Guys, I have heard preteen children present that glorious message with far greater clarity than some preachers who are filling huge churches. 
I've told this story before, but when I was in college, we did a, an evangelistic beach project at Daytona Beach during spring break. It was a madhouse. But one couple who was with our group shared the gospel with a six-year-old little girl. And she went back to the motorhome that she and her parents were staying in and she shared the gospel with them and they walked out as Christians and introduced themselves to the, the two young, the young man and woman who would share the gospel with their daughter. See, that's how it works. Jesus said, if you don't come with the faith of the child, you don't come at all. Simplicity. Purity. Singleness. And, and, and purity means it's, it's undefiled. It's uncomplicated. It's a marvelous message that we bear. If the church in the world today is going to be effective in the hands of God to advance the kingdom of the King of Glory, we will have to abandon the man-centered credentials and priorities that have replaced the church's singular focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is the mastery, the, the master of trickery and deception. He can never reclaim the soul of any believer in Jesus, but he relentlessly and ruthlessly seeks to toss the children of God here and there by every wind of unbiblical teaching, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's in Ephesians 4. He loves to distract Christians with shiny things and impressive people. But it is only by speaking the truth in love that we, every single one of us, through the proper working of every individual member of Christ's body, will build up the body into our head who is Christ as one new man. In verses 7-9, through nine, Paul moves to the second of two credentials that he sets forth as demonstration that he has represented Christ faithfully and well to these Corinthian saints. The first of the, those credentials is godly knowledge, and the second is unselfish ministry. Paul could never have been accused of selfishness of being self-serving in his ministry to the saints if they were paying any attention at all. As we've mentioned several times in our study of these two letters, because of its very strategic location along the trade route between Asia Minor and Europe, the city of Corinth was one of the most prosperous and populated cities in the entire Roman Empire. If there was any church that was in a position to financially support Paul's ministry, especially his ministry to them, it was the church at Corinth. But Paul steadfastly refused to accept even a dime from these saints. He accepted money from other churches to support his ministry, but not from the Corinthians. In fact, he accepted money from poorer churches like Philippi, but not from the Corinthians. Instead, when he was among the Corinthians, he worked with his own hands as a tent maker, and any other financial need that he had was supplied from other churches. Again, like those in the region of Macedonia, cities like Thessalonica and Philippi. 
Here in verses 7-9, through Paul says to the Corinthians, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was, was not a burden to anyone. For when their brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. <laughs> in verses 10 to 15, Paul pulls back the curtain on those who were undermining his apostleship in Corinth and the region around Corinth called Achaia. Paul has no confidence problem here because he knows that the truth he bears is the truth that saves. He will not stop his boasting because his boast is in Jesus. His boast is in the Gospel. His boast is driven by godly love and godly jealousy for the bride of Christ. His words in verses 10 and 11 are filled with godly passion and love. He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. God knows that I love you. If the saints doubt Paul's love for them, he knows that God has no doubt of it at all. Paul's life had been continually laid down in every respect because of his love for Jesus and for those that Jesus died to save. His life adorned the message that he preached. I love that, that dichotomy in the last point. Integrity and knowledge and selflessness. That's the message and the adornment of the message. It's always both that God calls us to. To preach the truth and to adorn what we preach with lives that match up to it. And that's what Paul did. Both the message and the life of Paul were simple, pure, true. So in verses 12 to 15, Paul declares that he will not back down in any way when it comes to his God-ordained authority and to his assignment as an apostle called out by the resurrected Christ to seek and save the lost and to build up the bride of Christ. No deception, no personal attack or insult, and certainly no imposter would push him off his God-assigned course. Instead, he says he will carry on without compromise, exposing the darkness by turning on the light, watching the cockroaches scatter as the perfect light fills room after room throughout the Roman Empire in every place that God sends him. By speaking the truth in love, Paul will, quote, cut off every opportunity from those who desire to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. He will not tolerate phonies. He finishes out this, this morning's powerful passage with these forceful words, verses 12 to 15. He says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting, for such men are false 
apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising when his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. I have to say again, this should get our attention. It's no small thing that, that Paul is pointing out in these last verses. We who bear the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in this world are just jars of clay filled up with Christ. But we face a formidable and shrewd opponent who has had thousands of years to perfect his game. Satan is far too skillful at crippling Christians to let his minions take off their disguises. He makes sure that they look as good and as godly as it is possible for wolves to look. He makes sure that they come across as, across as the smartest people in the room. He makes sure they talk up the virtues of love better than anybody else without ever truly loving. He makes sure that they are the most skillful speakers, the most convincing debaters, without ever speaking the truth of Jesus Christ. He makes sure they are by far the most effective at filling pews and emptying wallets for causes that never actually advance the kingdom of God. Paul says it shouldn't surprise us at all that the servants of Satan disguise themselves as servants of righteousness when their master so, so effectively disguises himself as an angel of light. Now I said earlier I would come back to the threefold attack, the threefold deception in verse 4 that Satan was waging on the saints in Corinth through these wolves in sheep's clothing. We really need to pay attention here, beloved. Satan's full court press consists of a threefold replacement of the real with the fake. Another Jesus whom we have not preached. A different spirit, spirit which you have not received and a different gospel which you have not accepted. Paul does not spell out for us what these fakes look like in his day. But they really haven't changed that much over the centuries since Jesus' first coming. Another Jesus. A Jesus who is nothing more than a great prophet and teacher is a fake Jesus. A Jesus who is not fully God and fully man is a fake Jesus. A Jesus who loves you without despising your sin is a fake Jesus. A Jesus who saves but does not judge is a fake Jesus. A Jesus who lets you define truth for yourself is absolutely a fake Jesus. A Jesus who promises you that you can share in His glory without sharing in His suffering is a fake Jesus. And I could go on. How about a different spirit? Man, I did a lot of thinking about this and I think I'm only just getting started. 
A spirit that is an impersonal force and not the third person of the Trinity is a fake spirit. A spirit that appeals to your experience instead of God's revelation is a, is a fake spirit. A spirit that glorifies the creature rather than the Creator is a fake spirit. In fact, a spirit that does not always glorify Jesus is a fake spirit. And I could go on. Finally, a different gospel. The false gospels that Satan brazenly proclaims throughout the world today are much the same as he has been brazenly proclaiming from the beginning. A gospel that congratulates men and women on their great value to God is a fake gospel. The only thing that you or I will ever have that is of value to God is that which we have received from God through our union with Jesus Christ that we had absolutely no part in accomplishing. Paul says himself, <laughs> what do you have that you have not received? This is a big deal, guys, because there are a lot of so-called evangelical preachers who are advocating this kind of nonsense. You can find them on the radio any day of the week. A gospel that tells you that you are stronger than you think, more worthy of love than you think, more useful than you think, maybe even prettier than you think, is a fake gospel. If you, if you listen carefully, guys, you will find that gospel in countless sermons and songs that are held in high esteem among people who call themselves evangelical Christians. Whatever your worst assessment of yourself may be, the truth is infinitely worse than that. God did not send His Son to save us because we were worth saving. Now, I know there are Christians who will argue that. I find no place to argue at all. The only worthy man who ever lived and walked this earth gave his life to save us when we were nothing but sinners, rebels, and enemies of the living God. Until you embrace that truth fully, you will spend your life looking for worth in the wrong place, especially if you're looking for it in yourself. The only good in us is Christ in us, the hope of glory. A gospel that tells you to follow your heart is utter nonsense. It's fake. Jeremiah 17.9, of course, dispenses with such a gospel bluntly and decisively. If you haven't memorized this one, you need to know it. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The next time someone says, follow your heart, read that to them. <laughs> Does that sound like the compass that you want to use for ordering your life? Beloved, the good news about Jesus, something you can reliably count on, is that it is never about you. A gospel that changes the mission of the church from seeking and saving the lost and making, men, making people disciples of Christ to fixing the manifestations of sin and the curse in this world through man's effort is a fake gospel. A gospel that promises anything that God's Word has not promised is a fake gospel. It is astonishing 
How many Christian bookstores have kiosks that are stacked to the ceiling with books that promise what God never promised? And ignore the promise that no one will ever take away from you. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, well, that's quite a list. There's too much for me to keep up with. If Satan is so good at making fake things look real and making false things sound like true things, how can we ever really be vigilant? How can we be protected against his deceptions? Well, I'm, beloved, I'm happy to tell you that God's answer is as simple as dirt. Be wise in what is good and naive in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Be wise in what is good and naive in what is evil. You don't have to study evil to live a, a godly life. The counterfeit will become blatantly obvious when the one you study day by day and moment by moment is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Make it the very foremost discipline of your daily life to behold Him in His Word. His Word is your necessary food, much more necessary than the next plate of food that comes onto your table. Sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. Pitch your tent there and remain. And you will know Him. He delights in making you to know Him. You will build your life on the cornerstone and you will not be moved even by the harshest storms of life or the fiercest attacks of Satan. But it's even better than that, beloved. By the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God, you will be equipped and empowered to storm and to overcome the very gates of hell. Together with all who have fixed their eyes and their hope only on the One who is all that is life indeed. Dear Father, thank You. Thank You for the, again for the power of Your Word. Thank You for the life of this faithful man. He's not different than us. He's just another jar of clay. But he was filled up with Christ. Father, fill us. Show us when we're putting anything else in that vessel than Him, than Christ. Make us make our lives make our lives defined and controlled by some the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.